Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. Our goal for this series has been to understand the church, what it is, why it exists. We're endeavoring to understand the church from a biblical perspective to ensure that what we are doing as a church is according to God's expectations and not our own. We want to ensure that we have a proper perspective on things like church membership, church leadership, the priorities that we set as a church and the like. One thing that we've come face to face with over the course of this study is the diverse nature of the church. Humanly speaking, the church is made up from people who would not likely come together in the normal course of life. In Paul's day, this is reflected in his conversation about the mystery, the union of Jew and Gentile in the church, the sharing of both Jew and Gentile in the promises of the Messiah, the Christ, the sharing of his promises of his grace as one body, as one new man. In our day, we may think about the differences of ethnicity, economics, or education. The church today is far more diverse than it was even in its inception. And again, humanly speaking, that could potentially lead to disaster. Any party endeavoring to accomplish a particular task with differing perspectives on how those things should be accomplished, differing values and experiences is bound for trouble. Liz Truss has become the prime minister with the shortest length of service in the whole history of Great Britain because her party disagreed with her on how things were to move forward. Politics at home is not much different. Disagree with the party line and you're bound to be ostracized by the party. If not politics, consider the corporate world. Why is it that when a new leadership takes over a major corporation, job cuts are inevitable? We've seen this most recently over at Twitter with Elon Musk's purchase. The reason is simple. There are going to be those in positions of leadership put in place by the old establishment who don't agree with the thought and the vision of the new leadership. So an easy way to resolve that is just to let them go. It begs the question, though, where does unity come from? In the context of the local church, again, we have people from different economic, ethnic, and educational backgrounds all being brought together to form a new body, a new man, a new race of people. How is that going to work? How is the church going to be able to come together and hope to accomplish anything? The answer, of course, lies in the power of God. Paul has been pointing us to the reality of the power of God, which is at work in the church since his last prayer at the end of chapter 1. The power of God is working in the church. This is how unity happens. This is how the work of the church gets done. This is how the church has persisted and operated for thousands of years now. Again, as we come back to our study in the book of Ephesians, we find ourselves in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, looking at another of Paul's prayers for the church. 
He prayed in chapter 1 that the church would know the power of God that is at work. And he went on to explain what that power looked like in the following passages. It is a power that brings new life to those who are dead in sin. It is a power that brings peace between various peoples of humanity, between them and God. It is a power that sets apart apostles and prophets as the foundation of this new body, this new church. And in our section, in light of all these things, Paul will pray that the church would not only know the power that is at work cognitively, but that through the power of God, we would know his love experientially. He prays that the love of God would permeate all that we do, that we would be filled with his love as we work together for his glory and for the good of the whole church. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We'll read it together. We'll pray, and then we'll look at the text in detail. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word, your word which sanctifies us, your word which is truth. As we come before your word this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Paul is praying for the church to have the power of his love among them. There are three different points. We'll look at three different movements in this text. In verses 14 and 15, Paul prays to the Father for the church to have the power of his love in light of his position as father overall. In verses 16 through 19, he prays for the father, to the father for the church to have his power to love in light of his perfections. And third, Paul prays to the father for the church to have the power of his love to accomplish his purposes. That's in verses 20 through 21. In light of his position as father, in light of his perfections, and to accomplish his purposes. Well, let's look at that first point. Paul prays to the father for the church to have the power of his love in light of his position as father over all. Look at it again at verses 14 and 15. Paul says there again, for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We began chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago. At the time, I indicated that Paul was beginning his prayer in verse 1 of the chapter, but then he went down a bit of a rabbit trail in the verses in between. 
and now returns again to his prayer for the church in verse 14. The prayer was motivated, Paul says, for this reason, for the reasons that he mentioned prior to this section in chapter 3 and at the end of chapter 2. Paul was again discussing the mystery, which he specifically describes in chapter 3, verse 6. He says there, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, God has brought together two groups into one. He has lavished his blessings on them equally and set them apart to be, as it says in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2, a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is his workmanship. The church are those who have been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared for them to walk in. Paul says, for this reason, I pray. Because of the significance of what God is doing in the church, because of the potential disaster in bringing together two previously incompatible groups and making them one, because this is ultimately all about bringing glory to God, Paul prays for God's help. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul prays and identifies God as the Father, just as he did at the beginning of the letter. He says this by way of reminder. It is the Father who has done all these things. In chapter 1, we saw it was the Father's will that some be chosen and set apart in Christ. It was the Father's will that the Son come to die for their redemption. It was the Father's will that the Spirit seal them as a guarantee It is the praise of the Father's glorious grace, the glorious grace of of him who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul prays here for a second time in the letter for the church to the Father because he is their heavenly Father. The Father gives good gifts to his children. He has given the church to his Son, Because we are in his son, we are adopted now in Christ into the family of God. We're also called his children. I read from you 1 John chapter 3 earlier. See how great a love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. And we are so by faith in Christ. There's also a more general sense that Paul intends here. He says, again, look at the text that, God is the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, the significance of the statement is more clearly noted in the original language. In the original, the word translated family is a derivative of the word for father. It could be used with reference to a family, a clan, a tribe, or even a whole nation. The goal is to emphasize that God the Father has authority over all peoples, as much as he has authority over all created things, because he's created all things, including the angels in heaven, because he's also their creator. They derive their name from him, as he has authority over them, and they are dependent on him. One author said it this way, in ancient thought, a name was not just a means of distinguishing one person from another. It was particularly the means of revealing their inner being, the true nature of that person. So for God to give creatures a name was not simply to provide them with a label, but signifies his bringing them into existence, exercising dominion over them, and giving each their appropriate role. 
For the verse thus affirms that the Father is the creator of all living beings, so that their existence and significance depends on him. His greatness and thus his sovereign power and authority in both heaven and on earth are stressed. End quote. The Father who is over all is the one to whom Paul bows his knee in prayer. The typical mode of prayer for a Jewish man was to stand with his hands raised to heaven. You see that in many places, Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Luke 18, 11. Paul also references this posture in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In our text, instead, he states that his posture is bowing at the knee. Some have suggested that this language is reminiscent of Isaiah 45, 23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. That was Isaiah 45. That probably sounds familiar to you. When we went through the book of Ephesians, Paul quoted from this passage as he wrote in chapter 2, and apply this passage to Jesus, chapter 2, verse 10 of Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, again, Paul is bowing in submission to the God to whom allegiance is due from every one of his created beings. Paul says, I do this willingly. He willingly places himself in humble submission to the one who is father over all, who has created all, the one to whom allegiance is due from all. And he makes this petition to him so that all of his children, whether they be from one family or tribe or another, so that all of his children would benefit from the blessing of the church. I mean, if you would ask anyone for assistance, if you would ask anyone for aid, Humanly speaking, for this mixed group of misfits from various tribes and tongues and nations, Jews and Gentiles all brought together, sharing in the promises, if you would ask anyone for aid, for help, to make sure that this thing works, who would you ask? You would ask their father to help. You would ask the one who created them anew. You would ask the one who has authority over all. We briefly discussed the significance of prayer in the past during our study in Ephesians. Paul is again returning to prayer for the church. That is significant for our learning. It's not just what he prays, but it's that he prays. The church needs prayer. Yes, we individually need prayer when there are daily troubles, daily trials, daily burdens that we each carry. Yes, we ought to know what is happening in each other's lives, and we ought to be praying for one another. But as we study through the New Testament letters and we hear the words of the apostles and see their example of prayer for the church, we dare not miss the significance of corporate prayer. And I don't mean just prayer meetings. I mean you and I praying as individuals for the church as a whole. You and I praying for the body of believers, praying to the one who is father over all, praying for his grace for the church, praying for his strength to operate mightily within the church praying for, as we will see shortly, his perfections to be evident in the church. As members, you ought to be praying for the Catonsville Baptist Church, consistently praying to the Father on our behalf, not merely for your own good, not merely for the good of your close friend in the church, the person you sit next to, but for all of us to grow together for his glory, for our good. We all need help from our Heavenly Father to accomplish this. 
Again, that's Paul's example here. He prays to the Father for the church to have his power in light of his position as Father over all. Next, we see that he prays for the church to have the power of his love in light of his perfections. Verses 16 through 19, again, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays, according to the riches of his glory. God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of those adopted in Christ, the Father who is over all has an abundance of riches. There are four times in Ephesians where Paul refers to the riches of God. In chapter 1, verse 7, he refers to the riches of his grace given to the believer by means of their redemption. In chapter 1, verse 18, he refers to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints as they are adopted into his family. In chapter 2, verse 7, he again refers to the riches of his grace that will be bestowed on believers in the future. And finally here, Paul prays that God would give to believers out of the abundance of his riches. Paul has no shame, in other words, in asking his father for some of his riches, particularly when those riches are for the benefit of his church. He asks here for spiritual strength. He says, grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being. This is similar to Colossians chapter 1 verse 11 where he prays that the church would be strengthened with power according to his glorious might. There is a mighty power at work in the church already. Again, I've said this many times before, but people always ask, especially when tragedy strikes, what is God doing in the world? or they, they thumb their noses at God, or they become angry at God when tragedy strikes their life, when they've not done anything to show love for God, they've not sought God, they've not sought his son Jesus, they've not obeyed him, they've not sought to, to um, accomplish his purposes in the world, but they'll turn to God in anger when something disastrous happens, and they'll ask the question, where was God? What is God doing in the world today? Is he doing anything? And if there's anything we've learned in reading through the book of Ephesians is that God is at work building his church. That's the answer to the question. That's the puzzle. That's a million dollar response. Somebody asks you, what is God doing in the world? He is building his church. He has established it already and he's continuing to build it. Again, throughout this broader section from the end of chapter 1 on to now, Paul has been discussing how the power of God is at work among us. In chapter 1, he called it the immeasurably great power at work toward us. He said this is the same power that God used in raising Jesus Christ from the dead, seating him in the heavenly places all above all rule and authority. He says that power, the same power that God used in raising Christ, is at work in the church presently. And here to close out that thought, Paul prays specifically that God would use that same power to strengthen his people. Look back at the text at his request. Again, that he would grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. 
We've also discussed the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout the letter. Again, the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. He is not some mystical energy floating around within the four walls of the church building. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has various roles that he performs in the life of those who are chosen. He regenerates us. He seals us. He unites the church into a dwelling place for God. And here in our text, he is the conduit through which the strength of God is poured out in the church. The spirit indwells the believer, remains with the believer. Thus, his sanctifying work takes place on the inside, on the inner man. Again, he asks for them to be strengthened. That's passive. It's something that is done to them. It's not something that we do. The church is wholly dependent on God through the Holy Spirit for this kind of power, this kind of strength. Well, look again at verse 17, that we, they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's prayer is that God would grant, according to his riches, that this one new man, this new body of believers would be strengthened. And as they are strengthened, that God would dwell, that Christ would dwell meaning settle in, make himself at home, remain, abide, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. The result of this strengthening, in other words, is that Jesus Christ would dwell in the hearts of his people, that he would be at home, that he would have preeminence, that he would be magnified, that he would be ruler there as well. One author said it this way, the heart here, as elsewhere in Ephesians, is employed in its customary Old Testament sense of the center of one's personality, the thoughts, will, emotions, and whatever else lies at the center of our being. If Christ has taken up residence in our hearts, he is at the center of our lives and exercises his rule over all that we are and do. This indwelling is through faith. That is, as they trust him, he makes their hearts his home. The implication of the apostles' prayer then is that the more the Spirit empowers their lives, the greater will be their transformation into the likeness of Christ. A point that will be developed throughout the second half of the letter, end quote. This faith, this ongoing trusting of Christ, is akin to what Christ discussed in the first part of John 15 that I read earlier. I am the vine, you are the branches. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The imagery is slightly reversed in John 15. We are clinging to him. We are abiding in him. This clinging and abiding, Jesus says, is all about faith and obedience to his word. In other words, our fidelity to the word of God is indicative of our abiding in Christ. Back in our passage in Ephesians, it's Christ abiding in us. The point is still the same. By faith, we are to trust in him, in his word, to remain close to him remain close to his word. And as we do that, his life, his goodness, his character shines forth in us. He said in John 15 that we would bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. Disciples walk in their teacher's footsteps. They abide in him. They live like him. They look like him. Another quote When the inner man is fed regularly on the word of God and seeks the spirit's will in all the decisions of life, the believer can be sure he will be strengthened with power through his spirit. Spiritual power is not the mark of a special class of Christians, but is the mark of every Christian who submits to God's word and spirit. 
Like physical growth and strength, spiritual growth and strength do not come overnight. As we discipline our minds and spirits to study God's word, understand it, and live by it, we are nourished and strengthened. Every bit of spiritual food and every bit of spiritual exercise add to our strength and endurance, end quote. That's why the word of God is so important in our lives. That's why we gather together Sunday after Sunday, and the, the lion's share of the time that we spend gathered together is around the word of God. It's not because I have good things to say. I, I personally, I don't have anything good to say. All I have to say is what's here. And you can verify that. This is what we gather around. Not any person, not programs, not any acts. The word of God. Back in our text, we see a prayer for spiritual growth, for Christ-likeness. It is a prayer that the power of God will work through the Spirit of God to make us more like the Son of God as we, by faith, humbly submit ourselves to him. This truth is further clarified in the next three verses. Look again at the end of 17 through 19. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As we are strengthened by the power of God through the Spirit of God in the inner man, Christ dwells and abides in our hearts by faith. As Christ abides in our hearts by faith, the very fact that he abides in our hearts, that he, as we said a moment ago, is at the center of our lives and exercises his rule over all that we are and do, As he abides in this way, so we are rooted and grounded in love. To put it another way, we need the strength of God through the spirit of God for the son of God to rule in our hearts so that the love of God would rule in our lives. It is the love of God, is it not? Paul goes on to say in the text, This is how we're able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know what? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. He says to comprehend, to know the love of Christ. Those are words indicating experience, not merely an intellectual knowledge. This is close, intimate experience of the love of Christ The word to know I think we're familiar with, but coupled with the term comprehend and the fact that this comprehension is done with all the saints speaks to the relational and experiential nature of this knowledge. To comprehend, to understand, to fathom is to experience in all its fullness. Paul is saying that we need strength to be able to experience the love of Christ in all of its fullness. Again, he says the breadth and length and height and depth of it. That is an expression of the fullness of the love of Christ. This love is so great, he says, in fact, that it surpasses knowledge. It's beyond our thinking. It is unfathomable. God himself must give us this experience. He must help us to comprehend it with one another. 
But as we comprehend it with one another, as we understand it with one another, as we experience it in all of its fullness with one another, then we are filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, then we become mature. That's really the goal, to be filled to all the fullness of God. Paul will speak in chapter 4, verse 13, of coming to full maturity. He says there, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In verse 15, growing up in every way into Christ. The church growing to display his character, his glory, letting his love shine forth through us. That is spiritual maturity. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more about the love of God in just a second. But I will say that there is a principle here which will come out in Paul's discussion in chapter 4. And we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. But it's crucial to us understanding who we are as the church. Why the church is so significant. Why the church must be preeminent in our thinking as members of the body of Christ. Why it's so important that we gather together and serve one another. The principle is this, very simply. True spiritual growth happens in the context of the gathered church. True maturity, the fullness of God being expressed in the people of God, happens in the context of the gathered church. So many people in our society, we're members of this society, this nation, so many people in our society, in our nation, are influenced by the individualism of the world around us. And we approach church in that same way. We think of church as something that we can or cannot do, something optional. If I feel like it today, I'll go. If I don't, I won't. We saw this a lot during the pandemic. When many churches decided to go virtual, many people decided they could simply do church virtually and not worry about going back to the fellowship. Under the guise of being careful, I want to be sensitive to those who have legitimate health concerns. I'm not talking about those who have legitimate health concerns. Physical concerns, compromised immune systems, weakened immune systems. I'm not talking about those folks. I am talking about those who could come but choose not to because they feel they can do church on their own in the privacy of their own home. They feel they can measure out how much church they need, how much of the word they need, how much of the fellowship they need through a video screen. And when they're done, when they're fed for the day, they quit and go about the rest of their life. The box is checked. They've done church, and so they're good for the rest of the week. That is not the church that the apostles envisioned. That is not the church that Jesus Christ envisioned and died for. The church gathers. We gather together. We rub shoulders together. We do life together. We eat food together. We break communion bread together. We breathe the same air. We walk the same hallways. This is the vision for the church. This is why gathering together as a local church is so significant and necessary for the growth of the individual member of Christ's church. God has designed his church so that growth happens when we gather together in love not apart from it. Those who do not gather do not benefit from the power of God that is at work when we gather together. Those who do not gather rob the rest of God's people of the benefit of their participation in the body of Christ. Again, I'm not talking about those who have legitimate reasons for gathering together, those who are weak and sick among us and not able to, but who want to be here. I'm talking about those who choose not to come. But again, we'll talk about more of that in subsequent weeks. Back to our text, verse 17 again. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In theology, when we discuss the character of God, various aspects of his character, they're often referred to as his perfections. God is God. He is thus perfect in all of what he is and all of what he does. Thus, we say that he is perfect in all aspects of his character. Thus, we refer to aspects of his character as his perfections. The specific perfection of God that is the goal in this text is his love. And that makes sense, right? Again, the whole discussion was predicated upon the reality of the unfolding mystery. Jew and Gentile being brought together as one new man, one new body, no longer separate, but together made joint heirs, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Humanly speaking, this was unthinkable, but God has done it. He has created them anew in Christ Jesus as his workmanship, as a dwelling of him in the spirit. God has done this. But again, how is it going to work? It works as his love becomes the controlling theme for his people, as his love informs them, as his love binds them, as his love compels them. Love is why Christ was sent. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Love is why Christ died for us even though we were sinners. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is what he expects from us. John 13, little children, I am... With you a little while, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus commands us to love one another, just as he has loved us. John 15, again, we read earlier. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We're told to love one another. We're told to abide in his love through keeping his commandments. We dare not allow the world to control the conversation on love because they really don't know what love is. No one can know the love of God apart from Christ. I think that sometimes we struggle in our conversations with the unbelieving world when they throw love into our faces. You guys should be more loving and less judgmental, they say. We might say we are loving and accepting. We hate the sin but love the sinner. They say, no, you don't love if you don't accept us for who we are. And we're caught trying to argue that point. The fact of the matter is that they're right. We don't love in the way that they do. We have a different kind of love, a qualitatively different kind of love. Jesus says to abide in his love. He says that we are to love one another as he loved us. Love is not the absolute acceptance of anyone or anything that they do at any time. Love is not take what I want, do what I think is best for me no matter what. 
just thinking through some of the truths that we've already explored in Ephesians, love is defined by our loving creator who made us in his image and for his purposes, for his glory. Love is an act of grace by which our sin against him is forgiven on the basis of the death of his son. Love is his choice to justify us by faith. Love is his mercy to make us a part of what he's doing in the world today, building his church. Love is gifting us with spiritual resources to build his church, enabling us through his spirit to be able to love one another as he has commanded us. Love is giving so that he can have his way, not getting so that I can have my way. Love is living within the boundaries that he established. Again, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It's not living outside of his boundaries. It's not living in the way that I want to live doing the things that I want to do, it's doing what he says. Love is dying to self, sacrificing for others. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Love is seeking the best interests of others, considering one another is more important than yourself. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, and the whole litany of 1 Corinthians 13. Again, that's not the love of the world. That's not what they're talking about. The world does not believe in or possess the same love as the church of Jesus Christ. Our love is sourced in God, strengthened by God. Our love is higher, different, otherworldly. It is better. Again, it's not better because we're better. It's better because God is better, because it comes from him. Well, Paul's prayer again in our text, is that God strengthened the church to have the power of his love, his love, his kind of love. We need the strength of God through the spirit of God for the son of God to rule in our hearts so that the love of God would rule in our lives. So that as we engage with the people of God, we would know the love of God in its fullness so that together we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Another quote briefly here. The opening expression, and I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love is a prayer for a lifestyle of love. Again, Paul mixes his metaphors. Rooted is agricultural. Established is architectural. But their significance is perfectly parallel. Like trees, our lives are to send down roots deep and wide into the soil of love. Like buildings, the edifices of our lives on earth are to have deep, solid foundations of love. If we are properly rooted and properly constructed on a foundation of love, nothing will be able to shake us. And he says, but, and here's the key, this is not to be our solitary, individualistic, isolated occupation, for we are to do it together with the saints. We can only come to a better, fuller understanding of his love in community, end quote. That's how we come to know the love of God, the love of Christ. We cannot know it, we cannot experience it in all of its fullness apart from the fellowship, the gathering of his people. I wonder, when you come to the fellowship, to the gathering of God's people, is that on your heart? Is that what you desire? Do you gather in order to love? I think all of us would love to be able to gather to be loved, but that's not the question. Do you gather in order to love? 
when you pray for the church, is it just for your needs or are you motivated by love to pray for others? When you serve, which this letter assumes that each of you are serving in some way, when you do so, are you doing so motivated by love for others? When you speak with one another, when we have business meetings, when you come to Bible study, <clears throat> when you give, do you do these things motivated by love for one another? When you see or hear a need presented, like someone needing a ride home from church, do you see it as an inconvenience or someone else's trouble, or do you see it as an opportunity to love a brother or sister in Christ? How about this? When you miss church, and again, sometimes it happens for various reasons, do you miss going because you won't be able to check off the box and you'll feel guilty? Do you miss going because you won't have your perceived spiritual needs met for the week? You won't get fed. Or do you miss going because you're hindered from loving your brothers and sisters and accomplishing the purposes of Christ? When you gather, are you motivated by love? Are you seeking to love so that your love will be built up and together we will be filled to the fullness of God's character, his perfections, his love? Well, again, in our passage... Paul is praying to the Father for the church to have the power of his love in light of his position as Father over all, in light of his perfections, the greatness of his love that's been poured out on us. And finally, he prays to the Father for the church to have power to love in order to accomplish his purposes, the purposes of God. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. These two verses are a beautiful doxology, a word of blessing at the end of his prayer. You've heard it before, I'm sure, particularly in the context of prayer. These verses and the where two or three are gathered together are often used in the context of prayer meetings, though the where two or three are gathered together is actually with reference to church discipline and not prayer. Our verses here at the end of Ephesians 3 are actually about prayer. Paul is concluding his prayer for the church and appears to become so enthralled with the thoughts of the greatness of God, the fullness of God, that he breaks out into spontaneous praise. Now to him, the him is obviously God, right? In fact, in typical Pauline fashion, he heaps on superlatives one on top of another, again, in describing God, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. God is able. We already know that. He's able to do all things. He's able to do anything. Here Paul says that he's able to do far more than we can ask or think. But not just far more. He says far more abundantly. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Now I can think of some pretty great things for the church, I think. I can think of all kinds of things that, that would be great for our little church, resources that we could use. Paul says that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything that any of us could ask for than any of us could even think of. God is much more creative than we are. He's a better thinker. He can conceive of things in a way we would never be able to things that would be good for his church. God is able to do these things according to the power that is at work in us. 
We return again to the idea of the power that is at work in us, the immeasurably great power that is at work in us, the same power that was at work in raising Christ from the dead, seating him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places above all rule and authority. That power, that power is at work in the church today, and it is on that basis that God can do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a great power at work in us? Do you believe that God is presently working in the world today? When everyone else, particularly again in times of crisis, say, what is God doing? Where is God? We can say that God is here. God is at work in the church. The power of God is directed toward building his church today. That's what he's doing. And listen, whether we believe it or not, whether anyone else is interested or not, God is interested. God is invested in his church. Look again at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Yes, this is a doxology, a word of blessing, a word of praise about God. He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. But this is also a statement of fact. God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. That brings us full circle back to chapter 1. God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. All of what God has done, the grace of God in the salvation that he's given to us in Christ was all done for the praise of his glorious grace. God has set apart his church in Christ, creating them into one new man, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, expressly for the purpose of glorifying himself by lavishing his grace upon them for all the cosmos to see. God will be glorified in his church, in his people who are in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his desire. That is his plan. That is his great purpose, to set apart a people for himself in Jesus Christ for the sole purpose of bringing glory to himself. It's not about us. It's about him. Now listen, if that's God's intent and his desire, then what good thing would he withhold from the church? If God's purpose is to be glorified in the church, would he ever let the church falter or fail? God is invested in his church for the sake of his own glory. Paul saw this truth and said, hey, let me just, let me just pray and ask God for some things. God desires to be glorified in his church. The church, this previously mixed group of dirty, rotten, stinking sinners, and so they need to know his love. And so Paul says, I'm going to pray for them so that they would bring glory to him. A couple of final points of application as we close here. Again, this passage is about prayer. Well, what does this church need that you have been praying for? How have you been praying for it? And have you been praying for it with the confidence that you're praying to the one who is rich in glory, who has all the resources at his disposal and who desires to be glorified in a mature, healthy church? Have you been praying to God with that confidence? Have you been praying for us? Are you asking for great things for us? Are you asking for more elders and deacons? Are you asking for more folks to hear the message and to be encouraged through our ministry in Catonsville? Are you asking for more resources to support the ministry, both here and abroad, as we give to the cooperative program? To the point of the passage, are you asking for the Lord to help us to know the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, that we would be filled up with his love so that we would be filled up to all his fullness, that we'd grow to maturity? 
Are you praying fervently without ceasing for us as a body of Christ here at Catonsville that these things would be true of us? If not, then you ought to be. Second, what are you invested in? I came from a world of banking by profession and more recently a world of investments. Smart investments take into account the amount of interest that is in a particular company. If lots of people are interested, it's usually because good things are happening. The company has a solid purpose, a solid value statement. They're making good moves. The leadership is headed in a good direction. Their product is solid, useful, and has potential to make profit, or at least most people think that that's what's happening. You are more inclined to put your money behind a product or a company when you see others putting their time, talent, and treasures behind that product and company. It wouldn't be wise to support something financially that has zero investors. The church has an investor whose wealth is unlimited. It is eternal. The church has an investor whose knowledge and wisdom is unfathomable. The church has an investor who has invested every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the church. He has invested all of his riches in the church. What is more important for you to invest your time in? Your time, your talents, your treasures than the church of Jesus Christ. Well, the church is not a political party that has to fight and maneuver to stay solvent. It's not an experiment in democracy. It's not a corporation that has recently experienced a takeover with new leadership and direction. The church is a completely new entity. It is, in fact, the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus and empowered for good works. The glue that bonds the church of Jesus Christ together is his love. The purpose for which we've been bonded together is his glory. Thus, we are to pray. We are to pray to the one who is father over all. We pray that God would indeed bond us together in love for his glory. We pray that we would persist in love, loving one another more than ourselves so that we can accomplish his purposes in the world. We pray knowing that he can and will do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that is within us for his glory. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Your word which sanctifies us. Thank you for the power that is at work in us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us to be a part of what you're doing in building your church. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to see our role in the building of your church. Help us to be faithful to love one another as you have called us. Strengthen us to love one another as you have called us. Strengthen us to do this for your glory so that ultimately you would be glorified in the church as you are glorified in your son, the Lord Jesus. We pray this now and for all eternity in Christ's name. Amen.